what is the rule of law? Now, the phrase rule of law may seem at first sight a rather woolly and perhaps a rather uninspiring or unexciting one. It may seem just one step removed from the rule of lawyers, and any idea of lawyers being in charge can excite murderous thoughts, and you will recall, or you may recall, Jack Cade's alleged famous battle cry recorded by Shakespeare in Henry VI, part two, and I quote, first thing we'll do, let's kill all the lawyers. Um, Yet, yet, like the air we breathe and the water we drink, we may not think much about uh, uh, the rule of law, But nonetheless, it's vital, I suggest, to our existence. Or more accurately, the type of human existence which we in this country have come to take for granted as essential to our ability to live happy, free and fulfilled lives. The rule of law is not something inherent in the nature of the British way of life. It's been achieved over the centuries through graft, courage sometimes self-sacrifice and vigilance. Now, the concept of the rule of law has been around for centuries in various different guises and iterations, but it's often said that its, most, its modern articulation starts with the great constitutional lawyer and the Vinerian professor of law at Oxford University in the 19th century, A.V. Dicey, and in particular, his writings about the British Constitution in the 1880s. Now, Dicey saw the British Constitution as founded on the concept of the rule of law, to which he ascribed two primary meanings. Um, The first of which I quote uh, at the beginning of this slide. We mean, in the first place, that no man is punishable or can lawfully be made to suffer in body or goods, except for a... When I say embody or goods, I think that means embody as in to be imprisoned, or goods, that means to be fined and or to have one's uh, property removed from one by way of some form of court order, whether in a civil or criminal uh, um, proceeding. Except for a distinct breach of law established in the ordinary legal manner before the ordinary courts of the land. Now, putting aside the slightly archaic language... Uh, that Dicey deployed in the late 19th century. Um, this, This proposition remains as vital now as it did in the 19th century. A fundamental tenet of English law, which, with at least some justification, likes to think of itself as the supreme manifestation of the rule of law in the world, is that individuals can do whatever they like except insofar as their behaviour conflicts with the law as clearly and prospectively, and I'll come back to that word prospectively, established by Parliament or by the judge-made common law. The government or prosecution authorities cannot simply, in this country, order the arrest, detention and punishment of people it does not approve of, for instance. And let me give a vivid example of that, dating back 300 years, which tells us that the rule of law is not something that has crept up upon us in recent times, but has been 
to a large extent inherent in the English law for some centuries. I go back to 1708. The Russian ambassador in London was forcibly removed from his coach and arrested for a debt of £50, which he had incurred in London. Now, the ambassador was quickly released, uh, but the Tsar of Russia, uh, uh, Peter the Great no less, took personal affront at this breach of diplomatic privilege as he saw it. His ambassador being arrested for a debt, and he demanded that the sheriff of Middlesex, the man who had effected the arrest, um, be punished with instant death. Um, Now, Queen Anne, who was the monarch on the throne at that time, responded diplomatically by her secretary to um, Peter the Great. And the secretary wrote, and and I've quoted it in my slide, Her Majesty could inflict no punishment upon any, even the meanest of her subjects, unless warranted by the law of the land. And she therefore trusted that his imperial majesty would not insist upon impossibilities. That is the rule of law in action in the early 18th century. And we can compare that with the experience of the philosopher and writer Voltaire, um, living in France, of course, just a few years later. He writes a satirical uh, uh, verses um, against a particular aristocrat who had great influence at the French court at the time. What is the outcome? He is arrested and imprisoned in the Bastille without trial, without legal process, simply on the say-so of an aristocrat who had influence at the court. And that is the two examples, one side showing the rule of law in action, the other side showing uh, a land in which the rule of law had yet to take shape. Now, Peter the Great's misconception of how English law works and what the rule of law entails is not stranded in the long-distant past. There are regular instances, some of of which you'll have read, up to the present day, of foreign rulers and governments demanding of the British government that it extradites or locks up some perceived troublemaker who is in disfavour with the foreign power and has found refuge in this country, seemingly unaware that these are matters solely for the courts and the British government cannot do anything uh, uh, to to do a favour to the foreign power that, that wishes to have some troublemaker shut up or locked up. Now, a further aspect of this first rule of the rule of law Uh, which I touched on a little earlier, is that a person's behaviour should not be criminalised after the event. Retrospective legislation or lawmaking is seen to be contrary to the rule of law. Now, let me give a famous um, and colourful example of where the House of Lords, as the then, the the final uh, English court, British Court of Appeal, acted or was perceived to have acted contrary to that rule. In the late 1950s, a highly entrepreneurial man called Shaw managed to persuade the prostitutes of Soho to pay to advertise in a brochure which he proposed to publish and sell to clients called the Ladies' Directory. 
And we can see a copy of it there. Exhibit number two. Um, clients were provided, and I'm not going to open that up. I don't think I've got a, I've, I've only got the front cover, I'm pleased to say. Clients were provided in the directories with the names, phone numbers, and the more or less exotic services being offered by the various advertisers. Now, the matter came before the criminal courts, and the judges took the view that this conduct should be criminal. Um, and even if no known crime yet covered what Mr. Shaw was doing. So the law and the judges decided to fill the gap and invent a new crime. And so poor old Mr. Shaw, or perhaps not so poor old Mr. Shaw, was convicted of an offence then unknown to the English law called conspiracy to pervert public morals. Um, there was one dissenting voice amongst the House of Lords, a very great judge called Lord Reed, who warned, and I quote, and you can see there, where Parliament fears to tread, it is not for the courts to rush in. I, if Parliament has decided not to legislate that there should be an offence known as conspiracy to pervert public morals, then it's not for judges to invent criminal offences to cover what is perceived to be behaviour that is disapproved of. Um, now, that is one of the great judicial sentences of the 20th century, and it's drawn from, as some of you will remember, that great line of Alexander Pope's, which shows really what Lord Reed really was thinking about um, and what he thought about his brother and sister judges who were in the majority. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And I'm pleased to say that it is Lord Reed's view, as exemplified in that pithy sentence, that has subsequently prevailed. So that's another aspect of the first rule, or the first part of the rule of law. Let me move to the second one. Part two, what is the rule of law? This is the second meaning that Dicey said, or spoke of. When we speak of the rule of law as a characteristic of our country, we mean not only that with us no man is above the law, but, which is a different thing, that here, I in Britain, every man, forgive the sexist language of the 19th century, whatever be his rank or condition, is subject to the ordinary law of the realm and amenable to the jurisdiction of the ordinary tribunals. Now, where the rule of law prevails, and I think what this, what, what this means, if a pauper sues a lord um, before the courts, then their rights and obligations are determined by those courts entirely regardless of their respective stations in life. The law is above them both and treats them as entirely equal before it. The law where the rule of law prevails cares nothing for birth or wealth or influence. Now, one of the great examples of that uh, uh, proposition came in the 1990s in a case called M and the Home Office. M was a Zairean national who sought political asylum in the United Kingdom. His application was unsuccessful and he was deported back to, his, back to Zaire. But there was then various legal shenanigans which meant that a judge took the view that he had been wrongly deported and ordered 
the Home Secretary, by way of an injunction, to take all steps that he could to procure the return of M back to this country. And the Home Secretary, Mr Kenneth Baker, who some of you will recall, on advice, it's fair to say, having taken legal advice, decided to ignore that court order on the basis that the lawyers uh, in, in the Home Office said, you don't need to comply with that court order. Now, what M then did was apply to commit Kenneth Baker to prison for contempt of court. And the matter went all the way to the House of Lords. And Baker's basic position was, look, as the Secretary of State for the Home Office, I am immune from this kind of application. And the judges were having none of it. And a famous judge, Lord Templeman, otherwise known colloquially as Sid Vicious Templeman, um, said this, uh, and he drew on the long arc of history. My lords, the argument that there is no power to enforce the law by injunction or contempt proceedings against a minister in his official capacity would, if upheld, establish the proposition that the executive obey the law as a matter of grace, i.e. a matter of discretion if they so choose, and not as a matter of necessity, a proposition which would reverse the result of the civil war. Weighty words indeed. Now, you may respond to these introductory remarks that I am making about the rule of law and say, well, Grant, you're speaking trite comments. These are, these are obvious facts you're telling us. These are obvious principles describing what is the natural order of things in this country. And I suggest if you are harbouring those thoughts, I say, no, don't be complacent in that regard. For most of human history and in most countries around the world, including our own for large parts of our history, birth, wealth and influence have indeed counted for an awful lot in the administration of justice. Yet the rule of law as manifested pretty well in this country for many decades means that those things count for nothing, apart, it's fair to say, for the ability to pay for potentially rather expensive lawyers. I do concede that. But don't, and don't take that proposition that birth, wealth and influence count for nothing for granted. In many countries, even today, they count for an awful lot and judges to a lesser or greater extent and to a more overt or less overt extent do the bidding of the executives of their country. And there's nothing inherent in the British climate or the British character which means that the concept of the rule of law as a concept prevailing is immutable. As I said at the beginning, it's something to be vigilant about and to strive for. Now, the rule of law has many other manifestations other than the two general propositions that I've uh, uh, proposed this evening. And indeed, many books have been written on the subject of the rule of law, perhaps the most famous of which is by one of our greatest judges, Lord Bingham, who wrote a book 10 years ago or so simply called The Rule of Law, a short, slim, penguin paperback, beautifully written, uh, which I would commend and recommend to everyone. Now, in that book, Lord Bingham, let me move on to my next slide, um, proposes his own broad definition of the rule of law. The core 
is the existing of, of the core existing principle, as I suggest, that all persons and authorities within the state, whether public or private, should be bound by and entitled to the benefit of laws publicly made taking effect generally in the future. I, Mr. Shaw's example gives the, the contrary proposition, and publicly administered in the courts. Now, what Lord Bingham then went on to do in his book was set out a number of other aspects of the rule of law, and I'm just going to briefly touch on four of them before I get to the meat of my subject, um, just so that we get a sense of what is the rule of law, and therefore, what do we mean by the misrule of law? The first, um, the, rule, the law must be accessible and so far as possible, intelligible, clear, and predictable. As a citizen of a country, of this country, you, each one of you, each one of us, needs to know precisely what our rights and obligations are. Before committing ourselves to a particular course of action, we need to know in advance what the legal consequences of taking that course of action, whether they be criminal or civil, might be. Now, the antithesis of that principle might be, just might be found in Franz Kafka's famous novel, The Trial. Um, and you may recall that in that case, in that trial, in that book, the protagonist, uh, Joseph K., as he was described, was arrested, prosecuted, uh, and eventually executed for a crime which was never identified to him. In Kafka's nightmare world, hearings take place in courts which are impossible to find, at times never actually explained to poor Joseph K. Um, and in that respect, it seems to me that Kafka's novel might be described as the greatest fictional plea for the rule of law uh, in world literature. And I should say that Kafka's nightmare world, as I describe it, is not entirely removed from uh, uh, the real life of the 20th century. Um, in his account of the trial of Nelson Mandela and the other defendants in the, the so-called Rivonia trial in 1964, their solicitor, the great Joel Joffe, explains, tells a terrible story, a remarkable story, where he knows... He's be, he knows that there is a prosecution pending and he believes it's going to be against Mandela and certain other of Mandela's associates. Um, but he doesn't know when the trial's going to start. So he phones up the prosecutor, uh, an appalling man called Percy Utah, and says, Dr. Utah, when's the trial starting? He's not told. He has to phone up. And Utah says, well, there's going to be a hearing tomorrow at 10 o'clock in Pretoria. So the next day, Joffe and his council all jump into a car and drive up to Pretoria from Johannesburg. They arrive at the, the Palace of Justice in Pretoria and say, well, we're here for Mr. Mandela's proceeding. And he is met with blank faces by everyone in the courtroom. We know, we know of no such case. We know of no such case. So in a fury, Joffe then phones Utah back again and says, well, what's going on? And Utah says, oh, no, no, actually, it's starting tomorrow, not today. And Utah says, and, and Joffe then says, well, could you at least tell me what the charges are against my clients and who actually are going to be charged, who are going to be defendants? To which Utah says, you can wait and see. We'll tell you tomorrow at the hearing. So not quite 
We're not quite in the realm of Kafka's The Trial, but we're not too far removed from it in that kind of experience in South Africa in the early 1960s. The next proposition of Lord Bingham, means must be provided for resolving without prohibitive cost or inordinate delay bona fide civil disputes which the parties themselves are unable to resolve. Now, you may think that's a rather complicated and heavy sentence, but in fact, it is no more than, in reality, what you would expect um, of any legal system. If you own a buy-to-let flat, let's say, and you let it out to your tenant... And as is not an uncommon event, your tenant stops paying, then what do you want? What do you expect the state to provide? Do you expect the state to provide a mechanism whereby you can obtain the eviction of that tenant so that you can repossess your property and, and hopefully rent it and let it to a tenant who will pay? Now, you may think that's a matter of obviousness, but in, in Italy and Spain, to take two examples, the actual recovery of possession by landlords from defaulting tenants can take months, if not years. Um, that is an arrogate, a, de a, a derogation from the rule of law and a, a, an exemplification of that old saw, justice delayed is justice denied. Let me give you one other example, a very recent example. The rule of law encompasses the ability to actually go to court and obtain justice without prohibitive expense. If, if the courts say, in order to issue proceedings, you must pay £100,000 as a court fee, then all of our rights are deprived from us, because who's going to pay £100,000 as a court fee? There was a famous example just a few years ago where the government brought in new legislation or new regulations requiring applicants in the employment tribunals to pay a £1,000 or thereabouts fee to make use of the employment, uh, the services of an employment tribunal to get redress for discrimination claims or for um, unfair dismissal claims and, and, and what have you. And Unison, the, 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 um, the union, came up with an awful lot of uh, uh, very good um, research showing that in fact requiring somebody who is seeking the, the services of the uh, uh, employment tribunals to pay a thousand pounds would effectively disenfranchise 90% of all people who previously used that, those courts and the Supreme Court struck down those regulations on the basis that they infringed the rule of law and the right of access to courts. Thirdly, adjudicative procedure provided by the state should be fair. Again, a slightly recondite phrase, but it means simply this, that the judge who is going to hear your case, or the jury that is going to hear your case, has, is, is independent and, and or uh, uh, chosen in an entirely random and non-biased way. And finally, the law must provide adequate protection of fundamental human rights. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a very short period of time. Now... That, then, is a perhaps overly lengthy thumbnail sketch of what we mean by the rule of law. It'll be self-evident to you that the rule of law and the concept of democracy go and walk hand in hand. But they are not joined at the hip. The rule of law is not simply the unmitigated manifest or the unmediated manifestation of the will of the people through its elected 
representatives. In fact, it uphold, involves the upholding of ideals that in theory are at risk of being legis legislated away by a democratic parliament, by potentially by popular acclaim. Demo Democrats can legislate away cornerstones of the rule of law. Let me give you an example or two examples. South Africa during the apartheid years was a form of democracy. A, of course, a bastardized and horrific form of democracy where three quarters of the populace were disenfranchised because of the color of their skin. But nonetheless, that democracy, bastardized as it was, legislated, its parliament legislated atrocious laws which infringed the rule of law on many levels. Um, democratic legislatures in the south southern states of America for large parts of the 20th century enacted racist legislation which was on the face of it democratically brought in but infringed the rule of law. Hence what I suggest is that rule, the rule of law is not to be equated simply with legalism, by which I mean strict adherence to the legal procedures laid down in a given country. During the Nazi regime, the lawmakers were scrupulous in the drafting uh, uh, of detailed racial statutes and regulations, and the emanations of the state were likewise scrupulous in their adherence to the laws so enacted. In Hannah Arendt's book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, about the trial of Adolf Eichmann after he'd been uh, kidnapped in Argentina and brought back to Israel for trial, she explains that what damned Eichmann most in the eyes of the judges who adjudicated upon him was the fact that he felt a sort of moral imperative to punctiliously adhere to and promote the racial laws that were enacted by the Nazi lawmakers. He, he gave evidence that he experienced a profound mental disorientation or moral disorientation when, as the end of the war came about, Eichmann discovered that his colleagues within the, the machine of the Third Reich were taking pragmatic decisions, seeing which way the wind was blowing, to thwart the uh, racial legislation of the Third Reich and breaching those rules. And he took the view this was outrageous, Eichmann. And he still took the view 14 years later when he was on trial in, in Jerusalem in 1961. Eichmann might have said that in the work he was doing for the Third Reich, he was in a perverted way adhering to the rule of law. And let me give another example. Lord Stain, a great law lord uh, of the last 20 years or so, um, in a lecture he gave a few years ago, provided this, this chilling example of a perverted form of uh, uh, adherence to the rule of law. He explained that Jews in Germany who'd been uh, uh, imprisoned before the war started by the civil courts of Germany. When the war started and when the final solution was brought, was brought into being, um, they were, the Gestapo didn't touch them in prison. They were left to 
fulfill and serve the entirety of their sentences unmolested. It was only when they had served the, the exact period of time prescribed by the judges that the Gestapo would, would come and wait at the prison gate and take them to the death camps. As Lord Steyne put it grimly, so the formal rule of law was observed. Um, and this allows me, I think, to return to Lord Bingham's fourth tenet. Um, the law must provide adequate protection of fundamental human rights. This is the element of the rule of law which engages substantive rather than procedural questions. It holds that there are a set of immutable or core values which a society and its legal system must uphold. Those, those values are, of course, set out in a number of international legal instruments. And the one we know most about in this country is, of course, the European Convention on Human Rights, which was incorporated into UK law by the Human Rights Act um, enacted some 20 or so years ago. Now, without those values, the values of the European Convention and other forms of international human rights uh, uh, conventions and declarations, what we understand as the rule of law can, in fact, I suggest, become an engine of oppression rather than a vehicle for liberation. And that is reflected in the preamble to the convention um, when it was drafted immediately after the end of the Second World War. And let's just remind ourselves what it says. This is the preamble before the, ver the various articles are set out. Um, Let's just read out the, the, second, the second paragraph. Being resolved as the governments of European countries which are like-minded and have a common heritage of political traditions, ideals, freedom, and the rule of law to take the first steps for the collective enforcement of certain of the rights stated in the Universal Declaration. The Universal Declaration is a reference to the Declaration of Human Rights proclaimed by the General Assembly of the United Nations in 1948. Now... It is the use of the law to repress rather than promote human aspiration and freedom. What I describe in this lecture series as the misrule of law that I want to consider over these three lectures. Um, the aspect of the misrule of law which I wish to touch upon tonight is the use of the law to suppress two of the core values which are now embraced both by the Universal Declaration and by uh, the European Convention, namely freedom of thought and expression. The circumstances which led to the upholding of those rights in the immediate post-war period were perhaps historically unique in their efficiency and ferocity and the ferocity with which they had been infringed in the years of the Second World War and before. Yet we see throughout human history the use of the law and the trial process as a device for the imposition of uniformity of thought and the suppression of dissent. And I'm going to offer you now some examples over the centuries and try and draw some conclusions thereafter from those examples. Let's go back... 2,400 years or so. We're in Athens in 399 
BC. And we all remember, well, we recall if we don't remember, um, Socrates' trial for impiety and so-called corrupt, the corruption of youth. Um, not corruption of youth in the sense we would understand it now, I should say. Um, and it represents that trial, one of the first examples of the utilisation of the law to suppress free thinking. The form of corruption which Socrates was accused of was supposedly preaching atheism and teaching the, the youth of Athens to question everything and treat nothing as sacrosanct. As we all know, at the end of his trial, Socrates was condemned to death, and more particularly condemned to die by his own hand, or given that opportunity, uh, an opportunity, of course, that he took. Uh, and one reason for the harsh sentence that was imposed on Socrates may be that, according to Plato's account, he ran a defence designed to antagonise those who sat in judgment upon him. Um, so I quote from his speech to the jury, apparently a jury of 501 Athenian citizens all crammed in to the courtroom. Um, and it, it's a defence which um, it's fair to say that if I, were, if I were advising Socrates at the time, I might not necessarily have suggested he approach his, the, 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 the jury quite in this way. Do not interrupt, Athenians, but keep that promise which I asked of you, not to interrupt, no matter what I say, but to listen, for I think that you'll gain by listening. You may be very sure that if you put to death such a one as I, you will not injure me more than you injure your own selves, for if you kill me, you will not readily find another such as I, who am fastened upon the state by God, no less, by God, like some gadfly upon a powerful hybrid horse that has become sluggish by reason of its very size and needs to be aroused. As such a gadfly does God seem to have fastened me upon the state, wherefore besetting you everywhere the whole day long, I arouse and stir up and reproach each one of you. As I say, not necessarily an approach designed to uh, uh, obtain the sympathy of his jury, a foolhardy and brave defence, you might say, and one which duly um, antagonised the jury such that they uh, sentenced him to effectively death. He was, an, he was executed, Socrates, because he challenged uh, the received thinking of the Athenian state um, in a way that no doubt annoyed and offended in very substantial measure. And that very challenge he offered to the Athenian state through his philosophizing was extended into the way that he approached his defense to that. And now the notion of Socrates as the free thinker who sacrificed himself to his ideals is best manifested by um, David's famous uh, uh, painting at the light, late, later part of the 18th century, uh, The Death of Socrates, which of course is a very famous painting. Let me move forward a few hundred years. It's an astonishing thought now that for centuries, various emanations of the Christian church acted vigorously to prevent the Bible from getting into the hands of the laity. The Bible was to be the sole preserve of the clergy. 
The people could not know the word of God except as mediated through the preaching of the priesthood. So after John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, dread thought, in the late 14th century, Parliament, the British Parliament, responded by passing a law, De Heretico Comburendo, which of course all of you Latinists will know uh, means regarding the burning of heretics, um, directed against John Wycliffe's adherents, known as Lollards. Um, and one part of that act provided as follows. Divers, false and perverse people of a certain new sect make and write books. They do wickedly instruct and inform people. That was the, da- that was the danger, instruct and inform, and commit subversion of the said Catholic faith. And so the act went on in like measure. Um, and it provided as follows, um, that if the, the members of this sect did not abjure their heretical beliefs um, or failed to deliver up these dangerous books, i.e. in the main copies of Wycliffe's translated Bible, they would be, and I quote, burnt that such punishment may strike fear into the minds of others, whereby no such wicked doctrine and heretical and erroneous opinions, nor their authors in the said realm and dominions against the Catholic faith, Christian law, and determination of the Holy Church, which God prohibit, be sustained or in any way suffered. Now, John Wycliffe managed to die peacefully in his own bed. More than 40 years later, um, his remains were dug up and ritually burnt and thrown into the nearby river um, for his heresy of 40 years earlier. If we go forward another 100 years, we come to the case of John of William Tyndall, who likewise dedicated his life to the translation of the Bible into English. Um, He suffered a worse fate, and that's the fate we see in the woodcut on the right-hand side of the slide. He was tried for heresy and burnt at the stake. And what was the heresy that he propounded and suffered for? To diffuse knowledge to the people, to promulgate learning beyond the few. Um, And of course, Britain was in no way, or England was in no way unique in the desire to suppress dissenters and heretics. Um, Across Europe, throughout the Uh, uh, early modern period and indeed into the modern period um, dissenters were hounded prosecuted and punished we all remember the trial of Galileo um, and the requirement that the judges laid on Galileo requiring him as a sentence to renounce his heliocentrism i.e. his belief that the sun was at the centre of the universe uh, it's a strange thought that a, a court could think that it could actually pass a sentence requiring a person to change their private thoughts. But that is the sentence that was imposed, amongst other things, upon Galileo, of course, a very famous instance and a famous figure. Perhaps less well known is his almost immediate contemporary, Giordano Bruno, who was a Dominican friar and philosopher who lived at the end of the 16th century 
and who also proposed that the earth circled round the motionless sun and went further and proposed that the stars that everyone saw in there from their telescopes in the night sky were in fact distant suns around which planets no doubt circled in an infinite centerless universe, uh, a, pro- a philosophy and a doctrine which disturbed the people of late 16th century Italy. It's a pretty disturbing thought even now, I suppose, the idea of an infinite, centerless universe. Um, but the response of the prosecuting authorities of Italy in the late 16th century was to try him for heresy and to impose sentence of death upon him for his beliefs. Um, And um, the famous line that Bruno is said to have reposted to when sentence of death was passed upon him. Perhaps you pronounce this sentence against me with greater fear than I receive it. I hope it's true that he did say that. What an extraordinarily brave thing to have said uh, uh, immediately after your Uh, death has been pronounced upon you. And here is a photograph on the right of Bruno's statue, eventually erected in the late 19th century, on the very spot in the Campo di Fiore in Rome, where he was burnt at the stake. Now, Bruno has become one of the great symbols of free thinking of Europe. He died, literally died, for telling the truth. And indeed, if one reads the the, the account of his trial, his judges offered him salvation from death if he recanted. And he refused to recant, knowing that the consequence would be death in its most painful uh, uh, iteration. Um, What an extraordinary example of intellectual honesty being upheld in in extremis, just as Socrates had done two two millennia earlier. And let me just show you another statue of Giordano Bruno, which I had never come across until I was researching this lecture. We're now in Potsdamer Platz in Berlin. This is going down to the the tube station. And here is a statue of... uh, Bruno, and it is inspired by the fact that apparently before Bruno was put onto the pyre to be burnt, he was hung naked, upside down, to be humiliated and belittled before the people of Rome who came, as was often the case, to see the executions uh, of heretics and and criminals. Um, And extraordinarily, I think it's not a particularly clear photograph, but somehow the sculptor manages to find a dignity in what was intended as an act of outrageous indignity, an act designed to belittle the ideas which Bruno espoused. And I think it's worth pausing to think that if it wasn't for people like Bruno, like Galileo, and like many other free thinkers who are willing to stand up for their beliefs and for what they perceive to be the truth, we would still be living in a world which held as heretical the view that the earth is not the centre of the solar system or indeed the universe. 
Let me move closer to the present. Since the 17th century, Britain has prided itself with some justification on being a haven for free thinkers and a place where radical political views can be expressed and published without state interference or sanction. So after Voltaire had been released from the Bastille without trial, he fled to England where he sought a place of refuge and a place of safety. And of course, we all remember that a century later in the 19th century, it was to London that Mark, Karl Marx came, that Vladimir Lenin came, that Emil Zola came, that the French communards after the fall of the commune in 1871 came uh, as refugees and exiles. Yet at the same time that Britain was offering refuge for political free thinkers, the law was being used to suppress other forms of thought and expression. It's, of course, a cliché, may not be true quite so much now, that uh, uh, the English have historically been rather queasy about sex. And it's surely a great paradox that in the same decade of the 19th century, the 1850s, the Communist Manifesto was published in London without any official reaction at all. At the same, in the same decade, Parliament enacted the first Obscene Publications Act. And just a few years after that, an English judge, not a Parliament, but an English judge, devised the test of obscenity and so criminal liability for publishing obscene works, which would prevail in this country for the next century or so. A case called Hicklin. The Chief Justice said this, I think the test of obscenity is this, whether the tendency of the matters charged as obscenity is to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences and into whose hands a publication of this sort may fall. Now that ruling, as later interpreted by other mutton-chop-whiskered judges sitting in the Gothic gloom of the Royal Courts of Justice in the Strand had three significant features which I identify to show how the law was used to control um, indecorous expression, if I can use that phrase, for a century and more. The first thing we can say about it is that the test of obscenity is, in, is, a, is objective. I, the actual intentions of the writer are entirely irrelevant. doesn't matter. Whatever evidence he or she, he or she get, would, were to give would be excluded as irrelevant. The second uh, uh, aspect of that definition is that the concept of depraving and corrupting applies to any person. So the law could judge obscenity not by reference to the likely readership of the relevant book, but by, by reference to any person who might, who was at risk of reading it. And a favourite example of the prosecutors of the last of the hundred years between 1860 and 1960 or so was to bring up before the jury the dread thought of the hypothetical 14-year-old girl into whose hands this book might possibly fall, however unlikely that might be. Thirdly, the test didn't require the work in question to be judged as a whole or in context. And indeed, what the, what the prosecutors could do and did do was hunt through the book 
And if they found a particular passage which fell within that test, then the entire work would be condemned. And finally, I might say there was no available defence of literary or social merit at that time. Um, here then was judge-made law carefully crafted to provide the legal weaponry to ensure the regulation of discussion of sex and sexuality in this country. And I think it's a fair thing to say that the, the, throughout that century, the English law of obscenity was used and overtly used by the ruling classes, by the prosecutors and the judges, who were made up from the upper classes or the upper middle classes, to dictate what the masses could read and could write. And this desire for control extended, I should say, far beyond what one might think of as bog-standard pornography. Um, let me read out to you a few of the books that fell victim to this particular test during that miserable century. Havelock Allen's Studies in the Psychology of Sex, despite the fact that it was a learned book which would only likely to be ever read by psychologists and doctors. Nope, obscene and prosecuted and immolated by the flames. Mary Stopes's Married Love. Daniel Defoe's Mole Flanders. Boccaccio's The Decameron. Flaubert's Madame Bovary. Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness. Various novels by Balzac, all proscribed by judges across the country as being obscene. Now, in practice, the law of obscenity often op operated a form of double standard. If the relevant book was published in a sufficiently expensive edition and therefore deemed to be out of reach of the so-called working classes, then it might well escape prosecution. Hence the great crime that Penguin Books committed when it proposed to publish Lady Chatterley's Lover in mid-1960 was that it was proposing to produce an edition to sell at three shillings and sixpence and therefore within the reach of what were described as the shop girls of England, not my phrase, I should say. Um, and let me show two wonderful photographs of the period. Um, this is after the prosecution had failed, of course, of, of piles of books in the street. When did you last see that? With just sort of queues of people sort of with their three shillings and sixpence to buy a copy of the relevant book. And there are two, um, two young ladies there studying the book carefully. One's got two copies in her hand. Uh, perhaps one's for a friend. Um, now, um, I want to just touch upon, not going to spend too much time with Lady Chatley's Lover, which has been talked about too often by the world, um, but I want to just touch upon this, uh, uh, another great, perhaps greater, modernist masterpiece, which is James Joyce's Ulysses. And the response to Ulysses, the publication of Ulysses, gives a wonderful uh, uh, insight into the establishment mindset and the use of the law to suppress human expression and human thought. Um, Ulysses was published 99 years ago in Paris in 1922. And there was, I mean, James Joyce was a very famous author even before the publication of Ulysses, of course. And there was an awful lot of interest in it in, in England and a desire to read it in England. 
Nonetheless, the, the, the director of public prosecutions was asked his view by the prosecuting authorities as to whether they thought whether he thought it was obscene. And um, you won't be surprised to hear that the DPP's view was that indeed it was obscene. Um, and the result was that perhaps the most famous novel of the 20th century was effectively denied to British readership for at least 15 years. Books that were copies that were smuggled in or were imported were liable to be confiscated and booksellers who expressed a desire to sell it were, give, were sent stiff letters which uh, it's fair to say kept them at, at, at bay. Um, and the view that the DPP offered of um, Ulysses is quoted here, as might be supposed, I've not had the time, nor may I add, the inclination to read through this book. After It's a very long book, I accept. <laughs> I have, however, read pages 690 to 732. Uh, those are the ones to remember, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm entirely unable to appreciate how these pages are relevant to the rest of the book, or indeed what the book itself is about. I can discover no story. I think, Mr. Bodkin or Sir Archibald, that's the point of Ulysses. Um, there is no introduction which may give a key to its purpose in the pages above mentioned, written as they are, as if composed by a more or less illiterate vulgar woman. Just to pause there, you may recall that the last chapter of Ulysses is Molly Bloom's um, soliloquy, a kind of daydream, um, where she remembers various sexual encounters with her husband and various other, other, other lovers. Um, um, form an entirely dead, detached part of the production. In my opinion, there is more, and a great deal more than mere vulgarity or coarseness. There is a great deal of unmitigated filth and obscenity. It, it is conceivable there will be criticism of this attitude towards publication of a well-known writer. The answer will be that it is filthy, and filthy books are not allowed to be imported into this country. So there we are, ladies and gentlemen. What appears to have really offended Sir Archibald Bodkin about Ulysses was the idea that Joyce wrote out or imagined his mind, himself into the mind of a supposedly illiterate, vulgar woman, Molly Bloom. In fact, one of the great writers, if one was to imagine her as a writer of the 20th century, given what the, the words that are put into her mouth. The idea of that being encompassed in a work of literature was simply terrifying to him. And fortunately for him, the law was there to stop it, with the result, as I say, that there was a de facto ban on Ulysses for almost 20 years. Um, and the, the, the first chink in the, in the armour, or the, the brick, that, the, the, the first brick to be taken down at this sort of wall of censorship of Ulysses, was when the Lord Chancellor and former Secretary of State for India, Lord Birkenhead, after he died... Um, in 1930, it was discovered that he had a copy of Ulysses in his library. And um, the, his library was then put up for sale, uh, and the auctioneers listed out all the books were in his from the library of Lord Birkenhead. And there, as lot 53 or 521 or whatever it was, was a first edition of Ulysses, which caused immense agitation within the Home Office. The, the fact that Lord Birk, the great Lord Birkenhead, had himself had a copy might undermine the, the position being adopted by the Home Office. Um, the, the, the Bodkin attitude of mind, as I might describe it, of course, persisted for many years after that. We remember 
the famous question asked by the prosecutor in the Lady Chatley trial. Let me uh, uh, quote another question he asked Mervyn Griffiths-Jones, that is, in another trial of another book in the 1950s. Um, and I'll quote it, for, at least for humour value. He says to the jury in respect of some utterly innocuous novel, when Christmas comes, would you go out and buy copies of this book and hand them round as presents to the girls in the office? And if not, why not? The answer is because it is not the type of book they ought to read. So there we are. Um, there, there, there we are. Now, these are diverse examples that I've been giving, giving you over many centuries. What is, the, what is the, the common thread that binds them together? Well, I suggest this. Societies are fearful of dissenters. People who tell unpalatable truths or, un, or offer uncomfortable versions of human experience. And societies are therefore willing to deploy the law to suppress what they fear. And I think it is fear that provides the common factor which actuated all the prosecutors over those centuries in the cases that I've described. Fear at having your assumptions challenged and your prejudice threatened. Now, it's fair to say we've come a long way since then. And we now live in an age which is, I might describe as ceasing to be the age of fear, but the age of liberalism. And I use the word liberal liberalism in this sense. Of course, it has many diverse meanings, liberalism, but in this sense, as the willingness to live in a society and to operate a legal system where your assumptions can be safely challenged without legal restraint. Um, ability to, to suppress your fear and expose yourself to challenge. And I mentioned the, the, the European Convention, and we have there Article 9 and Article 10, uh, which embody the right of freedom of thought and conscience and religion, and embody the right to freedom of expression. Now, if we move to the modern day and read the decisions of the judges of the modern day in England, I have good news for you, or what I perceive to be good news, which is that the courts of England show real respect for these rights. They don't show respect in form, but in spirit and action. Um, and I wanted to just make reference to a couple of recent decisions of the English courts which show how far we have come as a nation. Two remarkable, I think fascinating, decisions of the English courts over the last six or seven years. The first is a decision in the Supreme Court called OPO and Rhodes, OPO being a, a, a child, so it was, his or her name was um, anonymised in the, in, the, in, the in the usual way. Now, Mr Rhodes, James Rhodes, some of you may have heard of, a famous concert pianist and author. Now, a few years ago, James Rhodes wished to publish a book he'd written which was about his life and about the way that music had saved him. Um, and he, part of that book related to very explicit, I say explicit not in the, in the nasty sense, but in the true sense, um, explicit 
descriptions of sexual abuse that Rhodes had suffered while a child. And these were very disturbing and upsetting descriptions um, of, of that. And the mother of, who had separated from Rhodes, the mother of his son, sought an injunction against Rhodes and his publisher to prevent the publication of Rhodes's book on the basis that the son, who didn't live with him anymore but lived with the mother, was a vulnerable child, was a young child, vulnerable of course, but especially vulnerable because he suffered from various conditions uh, um, which, may, which might have a profoundly disturbed, might mean that were he to read his father's account of his own early life might have a profoundly disturbing effect on this young boy. So the mother brought an action founded on an English tort, which is known as the infliction, the intentional infliction of harm. What the courts have described in a, pres in a prescient echo of current discourses as the right to personal safety. Now, so it, was, it was argued by the boy's mother on behalf of the, the child that by publishing the book, Rhodes would be knowingly inflicting harm on his own son and that that, should, that would be a legal wrong which the courts should intervene to protect. Um, now, the court of it, this was, at, the, at this stage, it was an interim injunction before a trial. Aye, but the, the, the mother wanted to prevent the publication until there was a full trial of the matter. But that might be some years in the future. So it would have, if the court granted the order, an immediate effect on Rhodes' right to freedom of expression. And remarkably, I think, the Court of Appeal was persuaded to grant the injunction. And it, it treated, almost treated Rhodes as having to justify his own desire and wish to publicise his own experiences he himself had had, his own truth, not his truth in that modern sense, but actual truth. Um, and, and by doing so, the Court of Appeal, one might think, really quite seriously invaded the autonomy of the individual to speak about their own lives and communicate about them. Um, now, Rhodes then appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in the shape of Lady Hale, no less, um, granted Rhodes's appeal. And we, with these famous words, or well-known words, freedom to report the truth is a basic right to which the law gives a very high level of protection. It's difficult to envisage any circumstance in which speech which is not deceptive, threatening, or possibly abusive could give rise to liability and tort for willful infringement of another's right to personal safety. The right to report the truth is justification in itself. I, the notion that the, of the Court of Appeal that Rhodes had to provide some additional justification above and beyond simply, I wish to write about myself, was in itself a form of modern-day heresy. But there is no general law prohibiting the publication of facts which will cause distress to another, even if that is the person's intention. Um, great words in my respectful view. I come on to the second, much more, even more recent and very interesting decision um, of a judge called Julian Knowles in the, high, in the High Court. Now, just to briefly give you the facts of that case, which are very interesting. A man called Miller is a prolific tweeter. He tweets views about a particular issue um, in a way which reasonable people might find 
offensive. And one person, a Mrs. B, did indeed find what Miller tweeted about offensive and complained to the police about what he'd written on Twitter. Now, the police, having received the complaint, treated his tweets as so-called non-crime hate incidents uh, under its own policy and recorded them as such. And a police officer then goes out to Mr. Miller's um, place of work and eventually speaks to him. And according to Miller, the police officer says, Mr. Miller, you have to quote, quotes, check your thinking. Um, and also says, and this is not disputed, if you escalate your tweets, we may have to intervene and prosecute you for a criminal offence. Now, Miller was profoundly discombobulated by the policeman's actions, and he sued the police for an infringement of his, human, of his right to freedom of expression on the basis that nobody suggested that what Miller was doing, he might have been offensive, some people would find his tweets offensive, but he was committing no breach of the criminal law. And the notion that where a man or woman is tweeting potentially offensively but not in criminal breach of the law, then has a police officer coming around saying, if you escalate your communications, how he might escalate them wasn't ever made clear, why he might escalate them, or what grounds there were to think he might escalate them was never made clear, we will think about prosecuting you, was treated by him and treated by the judge as having a profoundly chilling effect. And we have these uh, uh, very interesting words of the, of the judge which you've no doubt started reading. The effect of the police turning up at his place of work because of his political opinions must not be underestimated. To do so would be to undervalue a cardinal democratic freedom in this country. We've never had the checker, or, or a checker, or a Gestapo, or a Stasi. We've never lived in an Orwellian society. And, and you, can, you, can read, you can read on. A very interesting judgment in, 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 indeed. Um, and one which I think shows that the rule of law and the protection of freedom of expression, even for people who are being offensive, is alive and well in this country. And that is a critical part of the English interpretation or the British interpretation of the judges of Article 10. To quote from another decision, very recent, free speech encompasses the right to offend and indeed to abuse somebody else. The notion of having to justify your free speech with the notion deployed by the Court of Appeal in the Rhodes case has been well and truly squashed. Now, I've gone on far too long. My gosh, I'm so sorry, you've been extremely patient. Do I have a conclusion? I have a short conclusion, which I hope you'll bear with me um, when I just um, wrap up. Let me suggest this, that we have, as a nation, and possibly not as a world, but to some extent as some nations, emerged from an age of fear into an age of liberalism. And the English courts, as I say, have shown themselves to be admirably vigilant in the protection of the right of free expression. But it is fair to say that there are potential clouds on the horizon. Recent years have shown that the threat to freedom of expression and freedom of thought comes now not from courts, or prosecutors, or predominantly from courts or prosecutors. It comes from forms of self-censorship. Self and 
we've all read in the newspapers, and I've spoken myself to academics and journalists who report that there are within some universities and some departments and some parts of the media forms of thought and expression which are now off limits. Uh, the fear of giving offence, the very right that the courts have time and time again upheld, um, and the cons consequences of doing so for the offender, the person giving offence, can, we know, in the modern age, act as its own inhibition. Even as the law strenuously upholds the right to give offence and upholds the right of expression over the so-called right of personal safety, we read of the current orthodoxy, orthodoxy in some of the universities that students are to be protected from all forms of offence. Now, Socrates, Wycliffe, Bruno were all gruff-speaking irritants who in their own day gave massive offence to the majority opinion of their times. Now, the irritants of today, the offenders of today are not at risk of prosecution, uh, or not really at risk of prosecution, uh, but they are at risk of, as we know, moral opprobrium and, uh, in some cases, career destruction. It's not quite the cup of hemlock or the pyre in the Campo di Fiore, but it can be, as we know, a form of social and commercial death. Let me finish with this sentence. As history tells us, the heresy of one epoch is the wisdom of another. The falsities of one age are the truths of another. Thank you for being so incredibly patient. I've gone on 10 minutes longer than I should have been. Thank you so much.